Well, so we're going to look at the Bible now. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, now's a good time to grab one. I'm actually going to read some passages from the New Testament, but we're going to be looking mainly at one of the Psalms, Psalm 61. Um, I don't know the page number, I'm afraid, uh, but it's roughly in the middle of the Bible. Uh, and I'm going to put the words on the screen, so if you don't um, have a Bible with you, uh, then don't worry. So this year we've been looking at the life of King David, set out in 2 Samuel. Uh, that's been our, our big project for the year. It's, it's uh, finally gone up. We've actually got poster of the, whole, the way the whole of Samuel works on the wall over there. If you feel a bit lost in the midst of everything, uh, you can always go back and look at that. Uh, my uh, secret joy and, I suppose, embarrassing shame is that being a grown man, I now feel quite able to say that I read comic books. And uh, at times, I, I really like getting... I go to the library and I look around and Heather's usually reading some worthy tome uh, from uh, a, a current and urgent author and I'm getting Asterix the Gaul out of the library in order to read because I find it really funny. And... Uh, and some of us find it easier to take things in in picture form. So if you struggled a little bit with following what's going on in the, uh, the story as we've worked it through, you can see these amazing uh, posters that will, will teach it. So we've been looking at the life of David in 2 Samuel. And last week we completed our study of the book itself by thinking about the end of David's life and his career. And in some ways, the end of David's life was the darkest part of his life. His family started to fall apart. He had to fight off attempted coups from both his son and a rival from another faction. And yet through all of it, he knew that God was with him, was faithful and would give him life forever. And I want to look at one of David's uh, songs from this period. You see, David is an unusual man. For a whole host of reasons. But one of the reasons he's an unusual man is because he's both a great warrior and a great poet. And so you get these stories of stuff David did where he would invade countries and he would fight off battles and he would win great victories and he would set people free and, and then he would spend several years on the run from a baddie. And you get this kind of action movie sense of David. And yet at the same time he's writing all these songs so you also get a sense of what's going on in his mind while he's doing it. And that's quite an unusual combination. I'm not aware of anybody else who's quite like that. Not just from the Bible, but from any period of history. We don't, I mean, we have Julius Caesar's account of his battles, but we don't have great, great songbooks that he wrote to, uh, to tell us how he was feeling while he was doing it. Is there a problem? <laughs> Okay, is it sorted? Okay, no worries. Uh, no, 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 it's fine. No, no, I just wasn't sure. Last time, uh, last time people were whispering in the services because my daughter had swallowed something she wasn't supposed to. I was on a, was on her way to hospital, and uh, so I do now like to check what's going on. Um, uh, he's an unusual man. And I want to look at one of the songs that David wrote, one of the poems that he wrote, from a period when he was on the run from his own son, when his whole life was falling apart. 
Because I think the words of this, this psalm, this poem, are inspired by God to show us how we can call on him, even in our darkest times, and receive hope. Now, as you probably know, if you've been here for any more than a week, uh, every week I give a summary of the big idea we're going to look at, and here is this week's. There is no darkness or despair that Jesus cannot lead us out of. There's no darkness or despair that Jesus cannot lead us out of. None. There is no darkness or despair that Jesus cannot lead us out of. And I have to say, I will be open about this. The, the talk that I'm giving now draws on David's poetry. It also draws on my own experience. So... Um, I'm going to ask you to take it that actually I have worked through some of these ideas myself and they're more than just theory. I think sometimes when we, if we're struggling with darkness or with depression or with anxiety and we hear other people talking about it, it can seem a little bit like, well, that's fine for you, but I don't see how it could ever be true for me. And I, I want to assure you that this isn't the final word on this topic. There's loads we could talk about about therapy and all the rest of it. But actually, the ideas that David works through in this psalm and that I'm going to talk about now have been tested, and I've done the testing. And I, I want to assure you that they, they are true. And we're going to read Psalm 61 together as we go through, but I want to begin by highlighting some of the echoes of its key themes in Jesus' teaching. Always, when David is, 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 is writing the psalms, he's looking forward to Jesus. So his poetry is always looking forward to Jesus. Jesus himself makes this point. Uh, he's challenged at one point by various teachers of the law. And they say to him, he, he turns around and says to them, how can you say that the Messiah, you know, God's chosen one who's to come, will be the son of David and in that sense have to submit to him, be less than David? He says, doesn't David himself say, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand? What Jesus is saying is that David saw that there would be someone coming and that everything he was writing would be fulfilled in that person. And so it's good to look at Jesus' teaching. So this is what Jesus said. This is Matthew 7, 24 to 25. You don't need to worry about turning to it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And again, this is Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Who, who do people say I am? That's what he's asking. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, which means rocky. You are the rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And again, he told this story in chapter 18. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep, and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for that one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep 
than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now, before we begin to look at this psalm that I want to uh, share with you, Psalm 61, I want to acknowledge that not all of us are suffering mentally or spiritually. You might be somebody who is congenitally happy, and I am genuinely thrilled for you. As I was reading through my notes this morning, I was, I was conscious that that comment sounds sarcastic. It's not intended to sound sarcastic. I am genuinely happy if there are people here who find it easy to be optimistic about life and find that they are up people. Um, it's great that you're here. I'm thrilled that you're part of the church because we need your positivity and grace. And the temptation, if you're somebody who's like that, who who finds it difficult to... who identifies with Tigger, if I can put it that way, but finds Eeyore a bit of a trial, then it is tempting to tune out when, when we're talking about Eeyores. And I, I want to encourage you, please don't do that. Please uh, pay special attention to how David describes the crisis that he's going through. Because, actually, if you are a Tigger, you might be used to help an eel, if I can put it that way. Now, that's not intended to sound uh, condemning or judgmental. I'm an eel. Uh, I'm someone who struggles with, uh, you know, if you ever watch the Winnie the Pooh cartoons or read the books, you see Eeyore's often depicted with a cloud hovering over his head. I'm somebody who often has the cloud over my head. And uh, I imagine it's partly uh, biological, it's partly spiritual, it's partly uh, to do with my upbringing probably. I've got the faintest idea and I'm not that interested in finding out at the moment. But it just is true. And I sometimes need Tiggers alongside me and it's important that they understand how I work. So if you are tiggerish, bear with me and just be praying and thinking, actually, how do I know anybody who's not? And can I help them? Is this going to help me to help them? What does David say then? Well, he writes this psalm when he's on the run from Absalom. He's, he's been chased out of his throne by a murdering son, one of his sons who murdered one of his other sons. However bad your family situation is, it's not this bad. I'm willing to stake an awful lot of money on it. One of his sons murders one of his other sons after that son raped one of his daughters. Disaster. He leaves uh, his son in exile and then he brings the son back and treats him like he's been totally reinstated and this son instead tries to overthrow David. And David has to flee from... Uh, his throne and his palace in the centre of Israel and it feels like all of his friends have betrayed him and he's in the middle of the desert and he writes this poem about how he's feeling. He starts off with this. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. This poem begins with a prayer that God will hear his prayer. Now that's an odd place to start. Surely, if we begin to pray, it's because we already believe that God is hearing us. You don't talk to someone you believe is not hearing you. And yet David says, hear me. There's something real about that. There's something vulnerable about it. Vulnerable about it. Would, you, would people like me to put the heaters back on? I can see a few. You, yeah? Okay. Talk amongst yourselves.
Okay. Yeah, there we go. Pentecostals bring the fire. There's something intensely real and vulnerable about the decision to begin this poem by saying, God, please hear me. See, often when we're desperate or low, or we're forced to con- uh, we are forced to confront what feels like the absence of God. Again, this might not be the jolly psalm you're expect- jolly preach you're expected to hear from me this morning. It, it, it feels that way. If you're someone who struggles with anxiety or depression, it can feel as if God isn't there. Our feelings don't change the reality that he is. God is still there. He's everywhere present and fills all things. And I, and I, I suppose in our rational moments we can see that, that the way that we feel on one day and don't feel on the other doesn't change whether God is real and God is there or not. Right? If I feel particularly down, it doesn't change the reality that there is a chair there and it is red. But we can't see him. We feel like he's absent. It's not even necessarily an intellectual thing. It's just, it might take the form of intellectual doubts. I'm not sure if God exists. But it might be that I'm fully convinced God exists. I can well believe that he's necessary for the universe. But I can't find him. There are times when we feel like that. In, in those moments, it seems, we're calling out in the dark. And asking God to hear us. At such times our thoughts take on a sense of pleading with God. See, David describes these words not simply as a prayer. He's not just saying, hear my prayer. He's saying, hear my cry. It's a call for help. Made not on the basis of merit. He isn't bargaining with God. He isn't saying, God, I've done this, this and this, you should hear me. He's saying, I am in desperate need and I want you to help me. And so he follows this this thought through into verse 2. It says, from the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. He's describing someone who is, as it were, at the end of the world. Now he's not literally at the end of the world. He's actually in the desert. He's not very far away from Jerusalem. But he might as well be in Australia. So far does he feel from the life he enjoyed his friends and companions. So I don't know if any of you have ever felt like this. I might be the only one here who does. To be numb, sad, feeling alone and cut off. To be anxious and unable even to articulate a prayer of explanation. To have nothing but a cry to God you are not even sure that he will hear. Now if that's how you feel now, if that's how you have felt, or you know someone who feels like that, then you're in good company. Your pain is shared by the greatest king of Israel, by one of the most influential songwriters of all time. It's the pain that Jesus himself felt when he cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're not the words of somebody who finds life easy. They're not the words of a tigger. As we shall see, God has not abandoned us. God hadn't abandoned David. We are always close to him and he always holds us. But there are moments... When the pressure of life, the tragedy of circumstances, reduce even the most faith-filled believer to one calling out in the darkness. Reduce even the Son of God to one calling out in the darkness. God is present, but we feel that he's absent. I actually think this sense of despair and anxiety is getting worse. I did some research about this, about culture generally. Uh, The culture generally... uh, 
18% according to a survey by the Prince's Trust uh, published in The Guardian about a month ago. Uh, 18%, so that's nearly one in five young people aged between 16 and 25 feel that there's no point in living. These statistics need to be treated with a pinch of salt because it all depends on how you ask the question or the rest of it. But the NHS reports that hospital admissions for anxiety and stress, hospital admissions, not someone coming to see me and saying I feel really down, hospital admissions have doubled for that reason in the last 10 years. I think this is a, I think this is a congenital problem in society. I think people are feeling anxious and depressed. I think they're feeling low. I think they're feeling despairing. I think to use Nietzsche's language, we as a culture have tried to kill God and found that we have nothing to replace him with. So what does David do? He begins to pray. He says, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. When we're in this position, when we're in this place, it can feel as if life has come crashing down or that the walls of our mind are closing in. In those times, we often cannot see the way out. That's the nature of it. That's the tragedy of anxiety and depression, is that the moment when you most need to see the way forward, you can't see it. We find it very hard to move towards God or towards the light. And so David begins to show how it is that God wants to speak to us in that situation. What he says is we can't move towards God and so God moves towards us. We can't move towards God, so God moves towards us. We don't have to reason our way to him or summon the strength for faithfulness. The only step we need to take is to open our hearts in a cry, and then God comes to lead us to safety. Lead me, he says, to the rock that is higher than I. There's so much we can notice about how God works in this, but I want to point out four things. First, God comes to us. We don't have to build our way to him. So what St. Paul says, he says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God made the first move. If you're taking notes, that's Romans 5 verse 8. He came then and he comes still. When we feel distant and distressed, the Holy Spirit is already coming to find us and lead us back out again. That is why I say, although you might feel that God is absent, in fact he is present, you just can't see him. In a more famous poem, Psalm 23, uh, David talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, that's a, a, an idiom, it's a euphemism. It's, uh, it's like saying it's raining cats and dogs. What it refers to is the darkest valley, the darkest place you can, you, can, you can imagine. He's saying, when I walk through the darkest place I can imagine, the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. I can't see you, but there you are. Why do we say that? We say that because he comes to lead us out again. The Holy Spirit is already coming to find us and lead us back out again. This is what Jesus said. This is why we read the, that famous parable at the beginning that I read probably three, four times a year to the toddler group about the, par- about the uh, lost sheep. Now, I didn't get you making the noises. If we'd been doing the full performance, we would have been saying, uh, do you know what noise a sheep makes? And you would have tried to, I would have said, is, uh, does a sheep make the noise meow? And you'd have had to shout no. And uh, we'd have gone on for 15 minutes with this, okay? It's great fun. 
We tell it over and over and over again. And the point in the story is the sheep is lost and can't find the shepherd. So the shepherd comes to find the sheep. That's the point of the story. The sheep is lost and can't find the shepherd. Scared and can't find the one who keeps him. So the shepherd comes to find the sheep. If you feel lost, Christ's spirit is already coming to find you. Second, it's a journey. Lead me, David says. I think sometimes we want him to say, magic me. Zap me. I'm a big fan of superheroes, and there's a superhero movie out at the moment called Shazam. I'm desperate to go and see. And one of the things that uh, this guy can do when he becomes a superhero is zap stuff with electricity out of his fingers. And I think that's how we want God to work. So there's a very funny bit in the trailer you can find on YouTube when you go home where he's walking down the street. He's actually a 15-year-old boy who's received these superpowers and turns into a man. It's kind of like a big thing. And so he doesn't know what to do with them. So what he does is he goes down the street charging people's phones with his fingers as he goes past. Finds that, of course, he's overloading the phone. They're blowing up. People are getting very cross. It's very funny. I think that's how we want God to be. We want to be like, God, if only you were Shazam, you could just zap me and I'd be fine. Zap me. And of course, if God were to zap you, and sometimes that happens, I don't want to diminish that. There is a place for instantaneous healing of our minds as well as our bodies. There is a place for that. But actually, if God were to do that, very often it leads us, leaves us vulnerable to the same things, the same patterns of life, the same problems that caused the problem in the first place. Right? It's, it's like somebody who says, I want God to heal my broken leg so I can go on jumping off walls. You think, well, I'm not sure that that's that's necessarily the best thing to do. It's not how God works most of the time. He doesn't zap us. He leads us to safety. Now, God may suddenly change everything. It may be like a light going on. And praise God, there are testimonies that are abounding of that. I can show you hundreds. People in real midst of affliction. People who are suffering with addiction and depression and darkness. And God suddenly turns on the lights. More often, though, he leads us on a journey to safety and hope. Lead me to the rock that's higher than I. It's a process. I say this because I want, I want us to pursue God with all our hearts and minds and souls and strengths and to work with him in the process. Because it may take prayer, it may take friendship, it may take changes in ourselves and our lives, but what we have here is a certain hope that he will take us there. He will get us there. Sometimes it's a combination between the two. I'll share with you a testimony. There was a time in my life I've had two periods of pronounced depression. There was a one time in my life where I felt like I couldn't even pray anymore. It was at the point where I couldn't even articulate the cry. And so Heather had to come alongside me and pray with me. And actually, there's, depression is a complicated thing. It's partly physical, so the chemistry in your body is sometimes out of whack. It's partly social, so you've learnt behaviours that are not very helpful, or thought patterns that are not very helpful, and I'm convinced it's also partly spiritual. Why? Because we're three-dimensional people. Most problems have those three aspects to them. And one, there was one moment where Heather and I were praying in our living room where we lived at the time, and she was praying for me, and she prayed for me, and she started to do what you see Jesus doing. She was, you know, resisting, uh, resisting Satan and praying that God would heal my mind, and I felt something change. And I wasn't, be- <coughs> I wasn't better. 
But I had somehow moved from a position of not being able to do anything to cooperate with the process of getting better to suddenly being able. It was as if I'd just moved from that place of not being able to do anything to being able to start to walk out of the pit. I wasn't out, but I'd moved from that position. If you're looking for a biblical example of this, I would say there's a moment when Jesus raises a young girl from the dead in the Gospels, and he raises her from the dead, and then he says to her mother, now she needs rest, she needs food, she needs water. It's as if he's saying, look, I've done the bit to move her out of death, but now you need to take care of her and actually help her to heal. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I Third, God says, lead us to a rock that is higher than we are. And God's Spirit does not simply lead us back to ourselves. To do so would be no sort of deliverance at all, because it simply leaves us vulnerable to the same problems that we had in the first place. To come to Christ is not merely to be reconciled to oneself, although it is that, it includes that. It is to be led higher than we could otherwise be. It is to be lifted up and stood on one who is stronger, bigger and higher than we are. It is to use the parable Jesus told about himself, to be built on a rock that can't be touched by the storm. Lead me to a rock that is higher than I. Fourth, and this is to say the blindingly obvious, being stood on the rock in the midst of a storm does not mean the storm stops. To be put in a strong tower against the foe does not mean the foe has gone away. To be put in a refuge does not mean the crisis is over. If it was, you wouldn't need a strong tower, a refuge, a rock. I think that's sometimes where we can want something from God that actually God is not going to do. We want him to take us out of this world. And my brothers and sisters, dear brothers and sisters, he's not going to do that for you. He might deal with all the challenges that you face. My testimony is that there is a lot that God will deal with to remove the challenge from us. But very often, we have to go on living in a broken world. The storm carries on. The enemies still rage. The thing that made you anxious might well still be there. What God wants to do is to work in you and in me so that we're able to stand in the midst of it. And actually become a lighthouse for other people. Life is hard. Life for Christians is hard. It was for David. It was for Jesus. It was for Paul and for Peter and for James and for John and so on and so on and it may be for us too. My great mentor, John Wesley, who did more for the working people of this country, more for the spiritual health of this country in the 18th century than anyone else, one of the most influential Englishmen who's ever lived, I think would make the top 20, spent his whole life being chased out of churches by other Christians. Literally being stoned by mobs, being thrown into prison, for going around teaching the people about Jesus and organising them to share their property with each other. Life is hard. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, came and was crucified. You know, it's Easter. 
Uh, you may have come across a string of teaching that says that if you are faithful to God, if, the, if, if you are blessed by God, then your business will prosper, your health will be fine, your uh, relationships will be wonderful. And my answer to that is, what happened to Jesus then? He died penniless, with no friends, nailed to a cross. Because life is hard. God doesn't free us from the pain and hardships of life. He doesn't. He never says he will. He didn't flee from those hardships himself. God is not a God who's interested in coming and zipping his people off to heaven with him and leaving everyone else to suffer. God is God who said, no, I'm going to come and be one of you and suffer with you. God isn't interested in removing his people from amongst the sick. He's interested in going to the sick and healing them. He's not interested in removing his people from amongst the anxious. He's interested in going to the anxious and making them whole. He's not interested in fleeing death. He's interested in conquering death. He doesn't free us from the pain and hardships of life. That's not who he is. That's not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is God came to a world that was broken... And started to make people whole in the midst of it. What he does do is protect us and keep us secure in the midst of life's storms. The storm doesn't stop, but you're secure in the midst of it. You're built on a rock. Again, if I were telling the story as I tell it at a toddler group, we would all have been doing the actions. You know, I had to hammer. Maybe you hammer, 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 hammer. You had to saw, you and so on. Build your life on a rock. And then when the storm comes, we go pitter patter, pitter patter, pitter patter, pitter patter. And you do the wind. You know, there's all these things going on. And then the house on the rock stands in the midst of the storm. That's what God wants for you. Finding joy and peace in the midst of it. Paul says, I've learned to rejoice in every circumstance. What circumstances does he mean? Well, he was being beaten up, rejected, thrown in prison, eventually executed. It's like, hallelujah. I mean, what a matter. But that's what God wants for all of us. That the storms of this life don't touch us. And you can then show other people, an anxious and death generation, a generation where one in five young people believes that life is not worth living, that there is another way, and that it is worth living. And if God removed you from this world, how would anyone show them that? Who would there be in your families speaking to your aunt or your uncle or your cousin or your nephew or your daughter in your workplace or in your school? Who would there be showing people who are suffering in a generation where twice as many people are being admitted to hospital for anxiety that there's another way? Who would there be? No one. Instead, God has sent you. And this is what David says. He says there's a hope. The promise of Christ is more than simply that he will enable us to survive the difficulties of this life. He has a plan for each one of us in the midst of those difficulties. There's a purpose for you that you may not yet be able to see. If you are suffering now, my friends, if you are suffering with anxiety or depression or sadness now, just a sadness that will not go away, it's as if there is a cloud that follows you around. He has a purpose for you. You may feel that your life is meaningless, worthless even. You 
know, again, I'm, being, I'm trying to be intensely vulnerable with you because I want us to be real about this. This is the crisis moment of our generation. This is the big thing. The biggest killer of men between 18 and 50 is suicide. That's why I'm, I'm laying it out before you because I want you to understand that this is real. There will be moments where people feel worthless. I've had moments where I've felt worthless. I've had to say to Heather, my life is meaningless and I feel like I'm worth nothing. You may come to be convinced there is no hope for you. And David offers two answers. He says, I long to dwell in your tent forever and to take refuge in the shelter of your wings. For you, God, have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Increase the days of the king's life. His dears for many generations. God has a plan and a purpose for you even when you feel far from him. Even when you can't see him. If we take refuge in him, dwell in him, then he gives us a heritage. What is a heritage? Well, it's a piece of land that you can work and maintain and pass on to your children and use to feed others. It is a purpose. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, you give me something to do. You have a job for me and something that will bless other people and a reason to live. A heritage. You've heard my vows. There will be a moment when you are suffering. Those who are suffering with anxiety and with darkness may well come to a moment where they think, I cannot make a plan for the future. Not just in the terribly spiritual way where we say, oh, I can't make a plan. <coughs> I can't make a plan for the future because, you know, if God wills and all the rest of it. But you, you can't see tomorrow, so how can you make any plan for tomorrow? David says he's been in that place and now he's learned to make vows, promises to God about how he can serve him and love others. That's what a vow is. A vow is I've understood that my life has purpose and I'm vowing to use it for you. That's why we talk about marriage vows. Because it's you're coming together with one other person and you are promising a promise about how you will live with purpose. You know, I will love you in, in sickness and in health, in good times and bad times, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer. It's a vow, it's a promise about how we're going to love someone else. David is saying that if you are in the midst of that depression, if you know someone is in the midst of that depression, God has a plan to lead them to a point where they have such purpose that they can make vows. That they can say, yes God, I will serve you. Yes, I will give my life to others. He saved you and to do good. And he will nurture you and restore you until you are able to live with purpose and hope. You might feel like this could never be me. And I want to say, David says, yes it can. And then he looks beyond that. He says, hope for this life. And then he looks beyond it and says, may he be enthroned. May the king, that's himself, be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. Then I will ever sing in praise of your name. And fulfill my vows day after day. This is the unfashionable bit. Fashionable bit. David says, I believe in heaven. I believe in life after death. Don't talk about that a lot now, apparently. People don't seem to mention it much anymore. 
You know, the hope of Christ, the hope that Christ offers goes beyond this life. David looks to his future beyond this world, enthroned in God's presence forever. There is a hope, even when you keep coming back to anxiety and despair, even when it seems to capture you again, it will not last forever. This tears, this valley, may endure for a while, but the joy of heaven will endure forever. St. Paul wrote, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Sometimes all we can see is the difficulty. Paul says, well, the difficulty will pass. Why? Because everything will. What is unseen is eternal. It's unfashionable to say it, but we believe in eternal life. And my friends, in particular, I want to speak to those of us who are listening. I know there are plenty of people who listen who don't get to be here. I'm in the room who are my age. By my age, I mean under 55. I speak particularly to you and to me. We're in a generation that flees death. We put sick people in hospitals so that we don't see them anymore. Then when they get too old and they're going to die, we put them in care homes so that we don't live with it anymore. We flee the reality that life is fixed and finite and that we need a hope that extends beyond it. Beyond it. And I want to say it's as if we've created a fantasy for ourselves that divorces us from real life. Come with me and stand at the front of a funeral and lead people in mourning and you will see the reality that everyone is built to have hope that extends beyond this life. It's a basic human need. Why? Because it's how we were created for. There is a reason why almost every culture in almost everywhere, almost every time in history, has evolved some sense of a belief in life after death. Because we sense the call of eternity. Because we hear it. Because it whispers to us. This life is passing. But there's something that will last forever. And if you are in Christ, that thing that you can believe in that will last forever is like him. Again, we're coming to Easter. What is the point of the resurrection? Partly, it's to demonstrate that not only is death not the end of of life, but that what comes afterwards is good. Because Jesus is there. Because Jesus is there. And if you're in him, you will be with him. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. How should we apply this? Well, first of all, cry out. If you are facing a hard time, the temptation may well be to retreat inside yourself. I understand that. Believe me. 
The last thing you want to do is open yourself up to anyone, whether he be the son of God or your neighbour. Instead, what you may want to do is just curl up in a ball like a hedgehog and hope the world goes away. I do understand the temptation, but I want to encourage you to unfurl your ball. To cry out. Even if it's in a whisper. If you can't find the words, try using other people's prayers. Right, read the Psalms. I've been giving some reflection at them because I'm thinking about uh, trying to help other pastors. How I can, or I'm always thinking about how I can help other pastors. And one of the things that I've uh, been thinking about recently is what is the biggest pastoral issue that I've had to deal with? Don't worry, I'm not about to tell you about Mrs. Miggins and her stealing cakes. I think the biggest difficulty for Christians is that we don't feel that we can be honest in prayer with God. And I've tried to work out why that is. Why it is that we feel like we need to be nice to God. That we can't be raw and angry and upset and tell him that we are struggling to believe today or that we are feeling low and hopeless. And I think, I think the reason is that we stop praying the Psalms. I think the reason is we stop praying the Psalms. Psalms are chock full of this stuff. You, uh, let me tell you, you don't feel as angry as some of the some of the psalms from about one thirty onwards. You want to you want to read somebody who's angry, read those psalms. This is the, these are the prayers of someone who's been driven from their home by a, by a vicious army that murdered people in their beds. You cannot express more raw anger than that. And God says, "Well, I inspired that." Why? Because I wanted you to express it. It's how you're feeling. I want you to express it in more pain. You know, there's a psalm, Psalm 88, that has almost no hope in it at all. Why is it there? It doesn't tell us anything good about God. All it tells us is the rawness of human pain. Why? Because very often we feel in pain. And it's okay to express it. If you're struggling to find the words, pick up one of the Psalms and read it aloud and just say Amen. That's why they're there. Because God knew you and he made, he wrote down words that you could use in that moment. Let me let you in on a little secret. If God really is God and he knows everything, he already knows you're angry anyway. But Heather has this really irritating habit of saying, I know what you're thinking, Phil Pops. And what irritates me is that she does know what I'm thinking. Right? <laughs> she says, you're, you're perfectly see-through, and it pecks the heck out of me. Because I am see-through. Right? She's lived with me for coming up 11 years, this Friday. And she knows me well enough to know what I'm thinking. Well, God designed you and made you and has lived with you your entire life. He actually saw you before you were born. He already knows. So tell him. Not for his sake, but for yours. Or get a prayer book. They're helpful, can be helpful. Or praying in tongues, that can be helpful. That's part of the reason why we have, why God gives a gift to those who need it. To pray in other languages. Pray with your spirit rather than your mind, because your mind is so clogged up with mank that you can't get the words out. I've uh, used all of these when I've been in periods of depression. I've found them all helpful. You might have something else that's really helpful for you. Remember that God has not left you. You might feel distant from him, but God has not left you. 
He loves you and we love you even when you can't feel anything except absence. Your feeling does not change the reality of our love and His. If I can put it this way, we didn't love you because you were so nice in the first place, and nor did He. And the fact that you're struggling now does not mean He loves you any less, and nor do we. Allow others in. One of the reasons why our, why our culture is in crisis in terms of anxiety and stress is that we've started to live separate lives. The church is designed to be the antidote. Let others in. I understand it feels counterintuitive. When you're in that moment, you don't want other people to be there. You don't want to be vulnerable. None of us is alone in the storm. Jesus said to Peter, on this rock, I will build the church. In other words, when David says, lead me to the rock that's higher than I, what does he find when he gets there? He finds God's people. Because the church is built on the rock. We care for one another, we pray with one another. There might be times when, when you can't pray for yourself, but someone else can pray for you. If you're strong at the moment, cultivate friendships and support networks so that when you are weak, you can be comforted. Finally, each of us should try and find a place where we can work for Christ. If you're in a place to do so, make vows. Live lives of purpose, of love for God and for others. You're designed to do it. If you're in emotional or mental pain, you may well need to rest in Christ and find healing and peace. But then he has work for you to do. So... Set your mind to do it. There is no darkness or despair that Jesus cannot lead us out of. None. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave a few minutes to play some music, just for quiet prayer and meditation. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come, and then at the end of that, I'm going to I'm going to pray for people to be healed, and uh, I'm going to ask everybody to shut their eyes so that people don't feel embarrassed. But if you want prayer for healing, either of your mind or of your heart or of your body, I'm going to lead us in praying for that. And I'm going to, I'm going to stand in the place of Christ and, and, and pray with you. But first of all, let's just take a moment to pray and to be quiet and to meditate and to ask the Holy Spirit to minister to us. Pray, come Holy Spirit. Lord, would you, would you shape us and make us? Lord, would you minister into the darkness that we feel? Lord, would you lift the burden of it? Lord, would you... Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would come, Holy Spirit, and that you would start to meet with each one of us. Come, Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm just going to ask everyone, if you keep your eyes shut, I'd say that so that other people don't feel embarrassed. So, even if you don't feel comfortable with your eyes shut, do you mind just giving it a go, and then, for the sake of other people... If you feel like you've been really struggling with anxiety or mental health, and I want to pray for you, and I just want to encourage you, if you'd like prayer for that, put your hand on your head or on your heart. And we're going to, uh, I'm going to uh, pray in a moment, and I'm going to resist that and ask that God would start to lead you out of that pit. And if you feel like you want to be healed of something physical as well, uh, then just put your hand where the pain is or where the sickness is and we're going to pray for that as well just, let's just wait Holy Spirit we pray come Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit Lord Jesus I want to thank you Lord that when you sent out your disciples you said to them I give you authority over sickness and over demons and over darkness 
Lord, that you sent us in the same authority. And I want to say to those who are, uh, to the anxiety and the depression that is struggling, that is causing so many of my brothers and sisters to struggle, we resist you in Jesus' name. Anxiety, leave in Jesus' name. Depression, leave in Jesus' name. Father, we pray, Lord, that having begun to break the chains of these things, Lord, that you would lead us to a rock, Lord, that you would begin that process of healing and lead us out of despair. We say anxiety and depression be gone in Jesus' name. We say to sickness, there are many who are sick, and we pray, Lord, thank you that you have authority over sickness and healing, Lord, and Lord, there are lifestyle changes, and sometimes you want us to rest and all the rest of it, but we thank you that with you is healing, and we say to the sickness, be gone in Jesus' name. Be gone in Jesus' name. I'm just going to leave some quiet. Just, I just sense as well that God is wanting to minister to a couple of us. And if you sense that he's wanting to, to deal with something and you need to confess it or you want to just bring it to him and let him know that it's there, then, then just quietly do that. I just sense as we were singing that um, I believe that God has begun to do a work in some of us this morning. But I think what he wants to say is just some of us need to go a step further and um, be led. And that might involve going and see a counsellor or going and getting some help. And actually God wants you not to stop where he's, where he's come and found you but to be led back. And actually um, for me there was a, there was a process with counsellors and others and... Uh, just sense, if you sense that God is leading you on a journey, I want to encourage you to take the next step uh, because the destination is good. He's got a good place for you to go and you need to follow him into it.